0: Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD.
1: Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. How about this? We're dropping a lot of these. We appreciate the feedback you all have given about them. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. It's not something you expect to hear. A congressional representative from San Diego saying maybe the Navy has too many ships and maybe the Defense Department's budget is too big. But that's Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs. As she enters her second term, she has transitioned from rookie to leadership, and now she has to get to know her new constituents. Through the redistricting process, she now serves a different chunk of San Diego, and she's learning the new neighborhoods and cities that she has to represent. On a rainy Tuesday, she and I got together to talk about her first two years in Congress and her efforts to establish herself as a progressive national leader. We talked about the defense budget, the fascinating battle for Speaker of the House, and some wonky nuts and bolts You will love, I know you, about how Congress actually works. This interview is fresh off that Marathon Voting and Negotiations Week that led to Kevin McCarthy eventually becoming Speaker. So we will start there with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs. Uh, we have a lot to go over, but you just mentioned your day-to-day includes going to um, the Convoy District and getting to know some of your new constituents in that area. So can you take a minute and just describe how your district changed uh, and what the new boundaries are and, and what you think about
2: it? Yeah. So in addition to changing numbers, I used yeah. to represent the 53rd District and now i I represent the 51st District. Uh, It's about 50% different. Um, So uh, I used to have uh, East Chula Vista. I used to have parts of the Balboa Park communities. Now it's mostly um, Normal Heights to El Cajon. Uh, I have all of El Cajon now, Lemon Grove, La Mesa, Spring Valley, and then we go north. um, And I have Kearney Mesa, Mira Mesa, Scripps Ranch, Rancho Penasquitos, uh, University City, and Claremont.
1: Forgive me it's just my um amateur look at it, it seems like it's more conservative a little bit,
2: uh, it's slightly less democratic than my old district, but still a very blue area.
1: Got it, so we are hot off this big drama in the House of Representatives about who was going to be the new speaker. uh you were there, obviously you posted a lot of uh I think you were kind of having fun with how much trouble they were having, right, uh, during this period. But can you give us an inside look? What did we not see that you saw every day as that drama was playing out? Because I think a lot of people assumed it would work out at some point. But there was certainly a lot of uncertainty there for a while.
2: Yeah, well, the interesting thing is because the speaker controls the – uh What who has access to the floor cameras, Um, and there was no speaker. I think the American public actually got to see a lot more of the house floor than they normally did and got to see a lot about what was going on. Um, And while uh, I did have some fun memes uh, that I tweeted, I was actually, and all of the Democrats were quite frustrated that we weren't able to get anything done because of the Republican dysfunction, and uh, it had real world consequences. We couldn't do casework until we were sworn in. Um, I wasn't allowed to access classified information until I was sworn in. And as a member of the House Armed Services and House Foreign Affairs Committees, that's a very big part of my job. Um, So there were very real consequences to uh, what was happening on the House floor. And look, there were moments where we weren't sure what was going to happen. Um, I'll be honest, I did not think Kevin McCarthy was going to pull it out. Um, But it's clear that to do it, he had to mortgage his speakership to the far right of his party.
1: Was there ever a moment when the Democrats or you and some of your colleagues ever considered talking to them about a consensus candidate or something else that you could do to break that to, to make sure that that logjam was able to, to be relieved?
2: You know, Democrats were united in um, thinking that Hakeem Jeffries would have been the best speaker choice. Uh, And I think you saw that uh, through 15 rounds of voting. Um, And while many people were talking about, you know, consensus candidates in the media and things, um, there was never any real offer on the table. Uh, And I think, you know, Democrats were willing to entertain what might be offered, but um, nothing was.
1: Did anything ever come your way in some of those conversations? Did people ever ask you to take a leadership role or do something different?
2: Uh, So uh, I'm a member of the House Democratic leadership um, elected by my colleagues in our caucus. Uh, So I was involved in a lot of the discussions. And actually, um, despite, uh, as you know, being quite progressive myself, I have quite a lot of uh, relationships with Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, And I sit on the Armed Services Committee with a number of the ones who were holding out. And so I was... uh, having conversations with folks I knew on both sides, trying to figure out where this was going. A lot of it was logistical and timing. And, you know, we wanted to know when people should have their families actually show up and and all of those things. Um, But uh, in terms of any sort of real consensus deal, there wasn't anything, there wasn't any real offer on the table.
1: You told, I think it was NBC, that... You mentioned some of the concessions Kevin McCarthy had to make, that some of the new rule changes might actually benefit Democrats in the sense of their ability to to act or have influence in this Congress as the minority party. Can you explain more what you meant by that?
2: yeah um so this is gonna get really nerdy, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's go. that's what we're here for <laughs> hopefully uh those those of you listening wanted wanted a one o one on congressional rules absolutely um but a, a lot of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy made were about making the, the far right have the ability to get more things into bills. But to do that, it meant that he made concessions around amendments, uh, around what kinds of bills they'd be moving forward. Uh, so for instance, he promised open uh, open rules. What that means, usually we have a rules committee. And if you want an amendment to a bill, you have to take it to the rules committee. The rules committee decides which amendments are germane or not. And then they get voted on on the floor in a closed rule, meaning only the amendments agreed to by the rules committee get voted on on the floor. In an open rule, it means anyone can bring any amendment on the floor. And if it gets 218, it goes in the bill. And so I think that uh, that amendment process will allow us to to do some things. Um, he also made concessions around what's called a discharge petition, which is if you get 218 people to sign on to a, a bill, it automatically has to get voted on the floor. Um, that is something that I, I know many uh, folks in our party are starting to think about what You know, we only need six Republicans right now, five soon when the Virginia seat is filled um, to to be able to get a discharge petition that then has to get voted on the floor. Um, And so a a lot of those kinds of concessions that he made will mean that we might be able to do more than normally the minority party can.
1: What's the difference between a discharge petition and a bill?
2: The, The difference is that if you have a normal bill. Uh, Even if you get 218 co-sponsors, 218 is the majority, 218 co-sponsors, it first goes to the committee or committees of jurisdiction. The committees mark it up. Then it goes – then it can go to the floor. But there's no obligation by the committee or by leadership to actually bring it for a markup or bring it for a vote. Bills get introduced all the time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bills. and We don't vote on most of them. A discharge petition is what's called a privilege resolution, which means if you get the two hundred and eighteen signatures, it has to come up to the a floor vote and it bypasses the committees
1: so ostensibly if you let's let's pretend let's game out a a pretend immigration bill because okay. the real one's going to be a while right so uh, let's say there's a comprehensive immigration reform and it adds security, but it also gives a pathway to citizenship for certain people, but it leaves out the dreamers, right. Mm-hmm. And so you say, I want to make an amendment to include the DREAMers into that bill. What you're saying is if you have 218 or 217 supporters, you can just get that amendment done without going to the rules committee?
2: If they bring it to the floor in an open rule. If Kevin McCarthy brings an immigration bill to the floor at all, which is a separate conversation. Right. Um, but if... if they bring it to the floor under an open rule, um, which he has promised to do more of, but he has not promised all bills will be open rules.
1: Okay. So if if he brings it to the floor, what does open rule mean? I, I'm into this yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. so let's go.
2: So an open an open rule means that uh, the any amendment can be Got put onto it. A closed rule means only those that the rules committee said were germane can be voted on. And that's
1: his choice as Speaker? Yes. So he, he what did he agree to then with the... Caucus uh, to to do, to do more of them as open rule?
2: Yeah. And to put three of the um, Freedom Caucus members on the rules committee so that they also have more ability to determine which amendments get brought to the floor.
1: Was there any threshold on how many he would do that were open?
2: I don't believe there was a number. So
1: he just said like, I'll get, I got you. We'll do yeah, more.
2: And there was also concessions around amendments, floor amendments to spending bills, mm-hmm. uh, which normally you can't do. Um, And so we'll also be able to do floor amendments to the spending bills. And I believe he also promised to do each 12 of the bills individually instead of a single omnibus. So the way we fund the government is 12 individual spending bills based on the agencies we're talking about. Usually they get all looped together and that's what's called the omnibus and we vote on it once. Um, The Freedom Caucus wants us to vote on each of the 12 individually and they will also have amendments there.
1: Got it. So let's do one on the discharge petition. Okay. Let's say that you really want to get something done for the Dreamers. You get seven, two 217 other people in Congress to support you. Does that automatically then go to a vote? Yeah. So that's so you have to just get signatures, though, like literal signatures from each Yes, Congress yes. Member? This is
2: Congress. It's, it's very antiquated. <laughs>
1: that's awesome. Uh, okay, thank you for that. Anything yeah. else about that that's worth explaining?
2: Um, I think that's most of it, um, only just to say there is still the Senate. And so part of what will be interesting is normally when we get bills from the Senate that they've already passed, leadership normally brings them in a very closed rule because any any amendment we add to it means it has to go back to the Senate. Right. Uh, so uh, even the big bipartisan compromises that you know often happen, um, the House tries to input on the front end, because if we change it when it gets to us, we have to send it back. And so I'll, it'll be interesting to see what he does with those and how the far right of his party are going to deal with it when we get bills from the Senate that they want to amend.
1: Got it. So one of the initial challenges for this Congress is to deal with the debt limit. Um There's you know this this old rule that you can't extend the the debt obligations of the United States without uh, you know passing an amendment and change to the debt limit. And there's a lot of people concerned that the Democrats in the House didn't do that before they lost the majority. Do you share those concerns?
2: Personally, I think the debt limit is a bit of a silly notion because we've already voted to appropriate the money that's being spent. So we've already, Voted on spending the money, so it seems silly to have to vote again in order to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, you know the there were some conversations about what we could do on the debt limit before uh, we got t- to the end of the year. Um, at the end of the day, we didn't have the votes for it.
1: Got it. Um, let's dial back. So I think what was it like six months ago? You and I had coffee and we were talking about what was going on and you you seemed both nervous but also confident Um, nervous about as you said literally the democracy that the ability of a representative republic like this to function was in jeopardy and uh and you know the but you did have hope for the election um where are you at now with that
2: i think i'm mostly in the same place I'll be honest, I never thought I would be so happy that the United States Senate doesn't let anything uh, get done. But I think for the next two years, uh, it is important to remember that we still control the Senate and the White House. And so the worst of what the far right is going to try and do in the House will be stopped there. Um, But it's, you know, very scary to see just how extreme they are and how the Republican Party is really kowtowed to their far right flanks. Um, and I don't think that's good for the future of our democracy. But my bit of hope is that, you know, the American people already saw uh, in the speaker vote and are going to continue seeing just how extreme they are. And I think that, you know, hopefully that uh, will, I mean, I know that will come through because they're, they've already talked about the very extreme things they want to vote on. Uh, and that's some of the concessions Kevin McCarthy made. Um, but I think that you know the american people will see that and recognize it and and that will be reflected in the 2024 elections
1: so when i think of the the, the best sort of definition or understanding of the threat to our institutions and democracy it was that in moments like january 6th 2021 when there's a, a necessary functioning of the government to to make a decision to certify that a change of power is going to occur and then to carry out that that there would be enough people who want to change and and move on from a representative republic, or otherwise change the dynamics of power, that they're willing to go beyond those those sort of guardrails of democracy that we've set up and do something extraordinary and install somebody or keep somebody from being uh, installed. But you're talking, I think, about like actual legislation that, um, that you, they said that the worst of the plans of the far right, when you think of that, like what legislation or things are they doing that could threaten you know, the way that we've understood our republic for a long time?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think my lucky stars all the time that Kevin McCarthy was not speaker on January 6th, 2021, um, because I think we would have had a very different outcome. And, you know, I think, you know, before Congress, I worked on uh, issues of political violence um, at the State Department and the UN. And so, what you often see in these kinds of instances is that the first attempt uh, is a big, violent, bloody thing. Um, but future attempts tend to use the structures of the institutions themselves to try and overturn the will of the people. And I think we're seeing that in uh, the way Republicans, or, you know, not the way the extreme Republicans, the anti- democracy faction um is trying to put people in places of leadership over how elections are being run trying to put people in positions of leadership over um you know the very functioning of our democracy uh luckily many of those folks didn't win their elections this last uh election but many of them still did mm. and so that's what we're seeing right now and i think that's also what we are seeing on during the speaker vote is that you have the same group of people who uh, Kevin McCarthy had to kowtow to were the same ones who were perpetuating and spreading the big lie that encouraged and incited that violence. And now they're using the institution itself against it. And so um, that's part of my concern. And for instance, on the fact that Kevin McCarthy promised to put three of them on the rules committee. That's a very powerful place to be to decide what amendments get in or don't get in and what gets voted on. Um, I think we're going to see a a lot of bills uh, that are going to try and restrict rights and freedoms that we have, for many of us, taken for granted our entire lives. Um, They're already talking about those kinds of bills that they want to do. But we could also see bills on changing the way elections are run. we know there's a Supreme Court case coming up. We know that's something that they're interested in trying to do, uh, and you know, not only in blocking everything we want to do around voting rights and voter access, but also proactively, potentially, put trying to put in place some different rules.
1: You're talking about the the legislative. What is it called? Legislative supremacy or something in elections? Well, how do you understand the threat that's involved with that?
2: Right. So um, the common and. Correct uh, interpretation of the Constitution is that the federal government can oversee federal elections. There are some who say that because the states get to run their own elections, that there is a supremacy in what the states want to do, and that the federal government has no jurisdiction to oversee how those elections are being run. So, for instance, um. In historically, when the when the uh, Constitution was written, senators were actually appointed. Mm-hmm. It was only later that they became elected, uh, and that is because, and you know, the Constitution still says states get to choose how they send their senators. Uh, technically, the way we do a lot of these things is more by convention than by actual statute. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You could see a lot of changes if this uh, went through, including that, you know, potentially not having elections at all and having states make decisions on on who they send and how they do it.
1: You mentioned you're on the Armed Services Committee. So one of the things that's intrigued me since you started is, you know, as a San Diego representative, you've been very critical, if not actually, you know, against or setting yourself up in opposition to some of the military spending bills that have gone forward. And I'd like to understand and really grok what your position and and thinking is on this. Because uh, again, in a uh, sort of perfunctory sense, that's a kind of shocking thing for somebody in your position to do as San Diego rep who's overseeing a, an economy that's so dependent on military spending. And, I, and yet I think you're very willing to talk about it and explain it. W- what is your sort of approach to military spending and, and what you're trying to achieve in those positions?
2: Yeah, I'm incredibly proud to represent San Diego's military community. And I spend a lot of time working with our service members, working with our military families, working with our veterans. And what I have seen in doing that work is that we do not do a good job of taking care of our service members and their families. Here in San Diego, we have about a 4,000-person wait list for military child care. The San Diego Food Bank says that they serve around 53,000 members of military families and veterans every single month. We know that there are huge issues with our service members being able to find housing that they can afford. And we are seeing huge recruitment and retention issues uh, with our military. At the moment, we can't even fully man all of the ships we have here in San Diego because we don't have enough people. Mm -hmm. And when I think about That, and I think about the national security of our country. What is very clear to me is that if we don't do a better job of investing in what's really going to matter for the fight ahead, including and especially our service members themselves, then we are not going to be able to prosecute that fight. And so when I'm looking at our spending bills, when I'm looking at how we're doing the defense budget, what I'm thinking about is that holistic picture. And to me, it makes no sense to spend. Tons of money on airplanes and ships beyond what the Pentagon even says they need. And when we're not investing in what we need to do to actually be able to man those ships, to actually take care of the people who are going to be prosecuting that fight. And so to me, it's very clear if, you know, if we were spending $800 billion on making sure every military family had housing and, uh, you know, food on the table and childcare, then it would be a different story. But that's not what we're talking about. And that's why I've spent so much time fighting for those issues. And we were able to get an increase in the housing allowance for San Diego service members. Uh, I helped create a basic needs allowance so that uh, we could make sure that we were taking care of our folks. But we need to do a a lot more on that. And that's what I'm going to remain focused on. And that's what we need to do if we're really going to be able to address the challenges of the future.
1: Let's talk about the ships thing for a second. So my family came here because of the Navy. Uh, My wife was on a ship. Um, You said in a quote uh, about this issue, you said, I do think it makes sense to continue making sure Ukraine has what it needs to be successful, whereas I don't think it makes sense to continue building some arbitrary number of ships because we think that if we have that many ships, we'll be able to deter China without thinking about how at the moment we can't even man all the ships we have. What is going on that we're building so many ships that we can't staff, uh, and, and what is the real story going on there?
2: Yeah, I think there are many in the national security community who believe that we need an X-number ship navy, and that if we have that amount of ships, that's what we'll need to deter China. And don't think about sort of the quality of life issues that are Affecting our recruitment and our retention and our military personnel. Um, and to me, what the Ukraine conflict taught us is a few things. But one of them is that you can spend millions and millions of dollars on the big fancy things, the ships, the planes. But if a million dollar rocket can shoot it down, That's not going to be a very good matchup when it comes to actually the fight. And I think we're seeing a lot that we need to make sure we're investing in the things we actually need and that we shouldn't be thinking about the defense budget as a federal jobs program. I would love to do a federal jobs program, but I don't think our defense budget should be it.
1: You think it's being thought of as a jobs program?
2: Absolutely. By whom? By members of Congress whose districts are very heavily dependent on contracts.
1: So there's a bunch of defense contractors, many of whom might be listening right now, who might see that as a, as a threat to their uh, you know, requests or allocations. What do you think they need to know about, if you're in your world, what they need to do to prove relevance?
2: I think that there are many... Uh, companies who are being innovative and who are thinking about what we actually need for the challenges ahead. Uh, and there are many that are continuing to build legacy things that, you know, aren't necessarily what we need. And so to me, we need to be thinking about what we need for the future and making sure we're investing in that instead of just continuing these legacy projects because they're in someone's district and they want the jobs.
1: Mm-hmm you were quoted in a, in a story in Foreign Policy uh, about the progressive foreign policy that you and some colleagues were trying to put together. Uh, that's where you talked about the, the issue of too many ships, of uh, Ukraine and such. But I found uh, it was hard for me to grasp what the progressive foreign policy was. And it did talk about some uh, missteps and discussions that have happened where you know, for instance, it wasn't clear what the progressive policy was on Ukraine. It, where did you end up landing on that? Is, there's a lot of people on the right who feel like, or not a lot, but there's some who feel that spending so much money to help Ukraine in its war with Russia is an inappropriate use of our foreign funding, and it also just uh, gets us too close to potential war, which I think some people on your left could also agree with. Where are you on that discussion?
2: Yeah, I was uh in Ukraine last month actually uh and also went uh last year in January the last American delegation before the invasion happened. Uh so I've been uh working on this issue quite a lot as as many folks here in San Diego know. Um look, I think that it is very important that we support Ukraine in their fight against Russia. Um especially as we look at the future of the international system and wanting to make sure that it is a values-based system that is reflective of our values as Americans. And one of those values is that you don't get to just invade a neighbor uh, because you're bigger and stronger. So I think it's important that we continue supporting Ukraine and that we do so in a way that's mindful of the potential risks. uh, of the situation. And so I think one of the things the Biden administration has done an amazing job of is maintaining unity among uh, those folks supporting Ukraine, our NATO and European partners and allies, but also partners all over the world. And the most important thing is that we continue that unity, which sometimes means we have to go slower than what we would want to do necessarily if it was just us. But that unity actually is a huge part of why this has been as successful as it has been. Now, at the end of the day, as both President Biden and President Zelensky have said, this war is going to end in a negotiation. The question is what kind of negotiation and how do we, as the West, make sure that we're putting Ukraine in the best possible position for when the time is right to negotiate and that is something that only the Ukrainians can decide.
1: You could see from a Russian perspective like, well, maybe we could just hold out in that discussion if we're talking about leverage. If we hold out long enough, if we push them long enough, then a Republican might be elected president of the United States and uh, maybe the Senate also goes. And we could severely change the dynamic of, of how much support Ukraine can get from the United States. Do you see that? Does this, Can this Congress even, even as split as it is, can it pass more support for Ukraine?
2: I think that there is a broad bipartisan consensus that we need to continue supporting Ukraine. I think obviously you hear people on the extremes, um, but they're by no means the majority, and uh, I'm I'm sure we will we'll have the votes to be able to pass more support to Ukraine.
1: The some of the folks that talked about and pushed McCarthy so hard in this in this discussion about who was going to be speaker. They also advocated for a cut to federal government spending back to last year or the year before's levels, which would have included a pretty significant $75 billion, at least in normal terms, $75 billion, a lot of money, maybe not to the Pentagon, but $75 billion cut to the military um, budget. are, Are sort of general conversations about spending cuts like that something you're interested in?
2: I think it's clear. The defense budget is too high and is not being spent on the things we need for the fight ahead. I think arbitrary cuts that just uh, sort of slash off things without being mindful of what we need are not the way to do it. And I think it's clear that Republicans are trying to use this conversation around spending cuts to attack Social Security and Medicare, which we cannot let them do. Um, What we need to be doing on the defense budget is actually – having a real honest conversation with ourselves and real prioritization about what we need and what we don't need and what the strategy looks like for that. And then funding based on that instead of the opposite, which is here's a number, fill out how much you can in this number that we've decided.
1: Another thing we talked about, I think when we met several months ago was about, I think we were right before the ruling or right after the ruling on Roe came out And um, you believed it would resonate, and I think correctly, with voters. Um, Now there's a discussion about what the federal government will do with um, the new reality. Uh, There was a lot of talk before the ruling that it would go to the states. But now there's been, since then, discussion about what the federal government might do to regulate abortion on a national level. Um, First of all, did this whole thing play out the way you thought it would? both politically and regulatory ways?
2: Yeah, I mean, the amount of people who during the election told me Democrats were talking about abortion too much, I I couldn't tell you. Like, it was a huge number. But I think what people... Your friends, your allies. Yeah, yeah. Pollsters, strategists, members of Congress. But what I think people don't necessarily understand is that when you're my age look, I'm a 33-year-old woman, right? Basically, what I talk about with my friends is like, who's had a baby? Who wants to have a baby? Who doesn't want to have a baby? What their babies are doing? Who's watching their babies? Um, This is a kitchen table topic when you are uh, of reproductive age, right? This is the kitchen table topic. And so there were all these people who I think didn't realize how much this really resonated with people, and what we saw is that young people turned out at record numbers. We saw women turn out at record numbers, and that is all due to the fact that they knew that their personal rights were on the line. So to me, it was always very clear that this was going to be an issue that resonated with people and tr- brought them out to vote, and and that's exactly what we saw in the midterms. Um, in terms of what the federal government can do, or what what we sh- what we should do, so. We should pass the Women's Health Protection Act and codify the right to abortion into law. And then we should pass other bills that will protect people, like making sure that they can travel across state lines, that they can access medication abortion. Uh, My bill, the My Body, My Data Act, that works to protect digital privacy, uh, especially when it comes to reproductive and sexual health. Um, There's all these things we should be doing. What we know the Republicans have said they want to do, and one of the things that we're told Kevin McCarthy promised the far right to get their votes is to bring a extreme abortion ban bill with no exceptions to the floor. That counter that goes in the face of everything Republicans have said about this being a state level issue. And it's very clear that this was always their end game.
1: Is there any level of a regulation on that that you could bargain on, uh, minimum weeks, that sort of thing? Um, it seems like Lindsey Graham's proposal was to add uh, a minimum week uh, threshold like Roe had, but I think lower. Um, is there any negotiation room there?
2: To me, I don't want any government official getting in between me and my doctor when it comes to my healthcare decisions. So the
1: role of the federal government to you is to protect the right, full stop.
2: Yes. When people are making this decision, it's an incredibly personal decision, and government should not be involved. Yeah.
1: Your, uh, your bill specifically got a lot of attention as well. This was the idea that if you're using a, an app to track your periods, if you're using any kind of fertility uh, app or other thing, the idea that the federal government might suddenly become hostile to abortion and thus start to use that those apps and the data within them to to uh, prosecute women or otherwise track them down or help states track them down was was the fear you were tapping into. I thought it would resonate and become law, but it hasn't yet. Why?
2: Uh, so it, not just the federal government, actually, we're already seeing states use this kind of data against people. So in Nebraska, private Facebook messages uh, are being used to prosecute uh, a woman and her daughter for seeking an abortion. Uh, so we know, we know states are already trying to do this and will continue trying to use whatever data they can access, uh, to prosecute people, uh, who get abortions and those who help them like doctors. We weren't able to get the bill passed last Congress. Uh, it got caught up in larger conversations about uh, data privacy that were mostly a disagreement between the house and the Senate, frankly. Um, but it, my bill is very popular. It a poll was done um, last year, right before the election. Sixty-five percent of Americans think that c- Congress should act to protect reproductive health data, including fifty-four percent of Republicans. Uh, and so, we're going to continue working on it, and I'm hopeful we'll be able to uh, get it done this Congress.
1: I I, I want to get this in before I, I lose you, and and so one of the things we're talking about almost every day well every day is the crisis with homelessness in San Diego it's the number 1 number 2 number 3 issue people talk about there's just so many people on the streets in the canyons in the parks and um and then there's a side con- uh, you know crisis of people worried about their impacts on the neighborhoods on schools i've heard a lot about the the downtown library and the school within it and some of the troubles that people are having um around those areas and there's just a lot of tension, a lot of fear. I've tried to uh, characterize it as as kind of a, it's as though a tsunami hit or a hurricane hit, but over 10 years. And thousands of people have been displaced, just like might have been with that. Um, but it's just so slow rolling that we haven't dealt with it in the same way. It, yet, if a, if a hurricane hit and say 8,000 people were displaced or 8,000 families were displaced, you and other congressional members, I think, would be talking a lot about the need for federal and other action to deal with it. And yet, um, it's hard to get a sort of sense of emergency or any kind of hope, frankly, about the crisis here. And uh, I'm wondering, from your vantage, how do you see it? Is there any any role for the federal government? Any role for for members of Congress to help cities like this deal with this crisis? As I've argued, it's a housing crisis. But in the meantime, you know, in the next 10 years to fix that housing crisis, we have a acute safety and, and, and kind of just quality of life crisis, too. Do you have any um, perspective on that?
2: Yeah, look, ad- addressing homelessness is a huge priority for my office. It's something I'm sure you're not surprised to know we hear about all the time from our constituents. Um, there are some things we're working on at the federal level, including trying to get more funding for Section 8 housing vouchers, Uh, including trying to make sure we're getting what we need from the federal government. Um, the Funding formulas um, are such that the way homelessness is defined and counted in the federal language leaves out a lot of what we know the experience of homelessness is here in San Diego. Um, I'm uh, working a lot on especially family and children homelessness um, and making sure we're getting the prioritization on that. And I have a couple of bills addressing veterans homelessness as well. Um, I personally think Section 8 housing vouchers should be u- universal. If you are eligible for them, you get them instead of the system we have now. That's very broken and you know, takes, I think, the wait list at the moment is 14 years long.
1: It might be the only sort of welfare program we have that's still out as a lottery almost.
2: Uh, Unfortunately, we have more, but yes. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, yeah, so I think it should be a program where if you're eligible, you get it like some of our other uh, uh, social safety net programs are. Um, The fact of the matter is I wish there was more we could do from the federal government, but most of the solutions, most of the levers of the solution are really at the state and local level. Um, So we're trying to find every avenue that we can from the federal government. But just the way our system works, um, the federal government is not the one who holds the answer. It it really is the state and local government. And we're trying to get more funding. We're trying to do what we can at our level. Um, But it's – I wish there was more we could do.
1: Well, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that features a congresswoman this week. We are the most popular public affairs podcast that did that. Keep up with everything we're doing with The Morning Report. Check it out and subscribe at VOSD.org slash morning. That's VOSD.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.